Hello, everybody, and welcome to the AgroInnovations.com podcast, where we deal with all things related and debated in agriculture, from appropriate technology to fair trade, globalization, and organics. As we continue with our focus on agricultural biodiversity, we have with us Rex Dufour of ATRA, an entomologist with a strong understanding of the relationship between insect, pests, and biodiversity. Rex is going to explain to us some strategies for designing stable, healthy agroecosystems. Stay tuned. Rex Dufour is next. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the AgroInnovations.com podcast. Once again, thanks for joining us in our very second episode of the AgroInnovations podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Rex, why don't you just get started by telling us about your professional background? Okay. Um, actually, I work with uh, ATRA is one of the projects I spend a, a fair amount of time on, but uh, ATRA is run by the parent nonprofit is the National Center for Appropriate Technology, and that's a 501c3 nonprofit. I've been working with NCAT for, since about 1994. Uh, prior to that, um, my formal education, has been in, in uh, pest management and biology, uh, entomology specifically. I've worked overseas as a Peace Corps volunteer in pest management and then uh, spent additional time in Thailand and Laos working with the United Nations Border Relief Operation doing integrated rural development and also up in Laos uh, managing a Lao American project, another integrated rural development project. So uh, I've been working with farmers for quite some time, and I've spent a lot of my professional time actually um, trying to modify or unlearn some of the stuff I learned at that land grant, which is essentially uh, learning about how to manage pests using uh, farm biodiversity and uh, natural controls as opposed to uh, chemical inputs of various kinds. Right. People who are listening may not be familiar with ATRA. What is ATRA and what does ATRA do? Okay, thanks. ATRA is the National Sustainable Agriculture Information Service. It's been around since about 1987. It's a free service that's available to growers around the U.S. We have an, a website at www.attra.org. Uh, we also have a, a toll-free line or lines, uh, 1-800-346-9140, and folks can contact us either through the webpage or through our telephone service and ask us questions about any aspect of sustainable agriculture, production, or marketing, and we also really focus on organic agriculture as well. And uh, we have... Uh, around 250 or so prepared information uh, pamphlets or publications but we and we'll send them to you free of charge or you can download them instantly off our website or we will research a question if it's not covered if the, the information you're requesting is not uh, something that's covered in our prepared information we'll research that for you and then uh, get back to you within a few weeks with uh, some options so, okay. I mean, I'm not the most objective person, but I think uh, as far as this service goes, but I think it's a great service for uh, for farmers. 
And, uh, you know, people who are involved in organic inspection have said that ATRA does a lot of great work and uh, really helps out the organic community a lot as well. You know, that's one thing I didn't really mention is that we also have a lot of what we call documentation forms. So if you're an organic grower and you need, you know, organic growers have to keep pretty good records on things. We've tried to make that as painless as, as possible by developing forms for market gardeners and just about, you know, seed searches and, and all the kinds of inputs you have to keep track of uh, and management operations that you have to keep track of in organics, we have forms that you don't have to, so you don't have to create them yourself. You can just download them off our web or, or ask for hard copies. Right. Okay. That's great. So your professional training and experience are in the area of entomology. Uh, could you talk about the role of insects in agroecosystems? Sure. Well, you know, I, I started off definitely focusing just on insects and agroecosystems. And um, in formal education, you're mostly taught about just the role of pests because that's what the most obvious economic damage is coming from, just the insect pests. Um, the whole spectrum of the different kinds of beneficial organisms, including insects, are giving given a little bit of uh, lip service, but not, and you have to realize I was going to school about 30 years ago, so uh, I'm hoping things have changed, although seeing how uh, some of the folks coming out of land grants are still pretty chemically oriented, I'm not sure how much they have changed. So the role of insects depends on how you manage and design your farm and your farm's ecology. If you don't provide habitat for these insects. And I look at the insects, the way to think about them, or one way to think about them, is that they're actually little livestock, and you uh, want to manage them as if they were little livestock. You want to give them habitat. You want to give them uh, food options and, and places to overwinter. Uh, you wouldn't take any cows you own and just stick them out in the desert and expect them to do very well. And I think sometimes that's uh, how we treat our mini livestock, you know, the beneficial insects. So I think there's a lot of potential that is very untapped by the farm community in actually redesigning their farm to include a little bit more habitat for their beneficial insects and redesigning it so it's a little bit less friendly to pest insects. And uh, then you can really reduce the amount of inputs you have to use. And uh, these days, inputs, you're talking about energy costs. And and that obviously elevates your cost of production, which is going to affect your bottom line. So we're not just talking about sound management. We're talking about uh, better profits. Um, right. But, but I wonder, as, as I hear, as I listen to you speaking about this, one of the things that occurs to me, to what extent is the primary obstacle to designing our agroecosystems in the fashion that you're touching on what, to what extent is the primary obstacle the fact that people don't realize this potential that you're talking about? That's a really good point, and I'll address that in two ways. One, I think there is a lack of understanding of how beneficials, you know, what the needs of beneficial organisms in general and beneficial insects in particular have and how to go about providing those for those needs, although sometimes it's, it's a, a fairly simple 
kind of uh, redesigned doesn't take a lot of energy or money, but it does take some thought and it does take some management. Uh, the other part of that is kind of a systemic flaw, I think, in the way our agricultural system is designed, you know, more broadly in that farmers, a lot of farmers get their information from pest control advisors, particularly here in California, you have to be a certified um, pest control advisor. So that means you have to pass a certain number of tests and have a certain base knowledge about uh, entomology and plant diseases and other things. But the problem is that a lot of these pest control advisors work for a an input supplier, so a chemical company, and uh, there's a clear, I think, conflict of interest when the folks that are providing you pest management advice also are working uh, with a chemical company of some sort. They're, it's just, you know, if they don't sell any chemicals, they're going to be cutting their own throats, so to speak. So um, there are uh, a number of independent pest control advisors, but when you know, most farmers get their information from folks that work that if farmers are relying for a big portion of their pest management advice from folks that may have a vested interest in selling them chemicals, maybe that is one of the reasons that we're still so dependent on uh, chemical pesticides. Mm-hmm. So to what extent do you see that there's a niche there in terms of, you know, it seems like, and even in impoverished countries like Bolivia, I've seen farmers, you know, incredibly willing to spend for them what are exorbitant sums of money for, for agrochemicals. Um, and it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, with knowledge and information, there's not as much of a need to rely so heavily on those agrochemicals. And actually that would free up the farmer's budget to, you know, get the kind of consulting services that they need, yet, you know, there isn't that perception amongst farmers that, you know, they could actually be better investing their money in that type of, in, in those types of services. Right, and there's two, kind of two aspects to that question. One is the fact that in developing countries, a lot of times using uh, chemicals is, is viewed as kind of the modern approach to pest control. I know right. in Thailand, uh, chemicals, chemical pesticides are literally, the name for them is ya, which is medicine, uh-huh. or ya chemi, which is chemical medicine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I suspect there's probably something similar going on in Spanish in, in, uh, in that language. So the way developing country farmers view chemicals as, as kind of these miracle cures is, is, I think, part of the problem. And then the other, the flip side of that is that if you're a developing, if you're a farmer in a developing country, uh, say growing coffee and and maybe subsistence vegetables, and you have a pest outbreak, how much research is there being done for tropical ecosystems about how to manage those kinds of pests in that ecosystem? You know, here in California, we're fortunate in that there's a lot of alternative or relatively, relative to what there's being done in in the tropics, there's a fair amount of uh, pretty recent research about how to manage pests uh, using beneficials and and, uh, habitat 
Uh, I'm not sure there's been quite that much research in the tropics along those lines, though. Well, I would say that, you know, from my experience, the research is not so formal and institutionalized, but most of that information is in the heads of the really innovative and intelligent farmers, you know, in the third world who have actually been experimenting with these things over the over the course of their lifetimes or have learned from their parents, you know, or indigenous knowledge that's been passed down through generations. So, you know, some of that information exists, but a lot of it's just not being systematized. Sure. And I would agree with that. Every every village, you know, in, in every village, there's usually a few really, really smart farmers that are that are very observant and, you know, they're the innovators and the observers and, and they really know how to do things and, and farm and, and they're the ones uh, that could be used as trainers for the other farmers. But uh, like you said, that's something that hasn't been very well systematized. Right. And and also I've noticed that there's a real lack of concrete policies um, that say, you know, we're going to take these farmers and we're going to invest in them, you know, these intelligent people that you're referring to, and we're going to give them the tools they need to be instruments of change in their community. Well, that's, you know, that's kind of the, well, you've worked, uh, Frank, I think you were a Peace Corps volunteer in Bolivia, is that correct? Yeah. So you've seen... Um, Development is a very broad word with a lot of different meanings, but I think it's kind of like Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and, you know, what is quality. But each of us has an idea what development is. It's generally some progress forward and um, kind of living standard, I guess. Uh, and But it's a difficult thing in the developing world uh, when there are deficits in in physical infrastructure and uh, as well as human infrastructure at times, you know, how do you get investment from the capital out into the field? And that's that's uh, kind of a trick sometimes. Right. So um, as we've talked about previously, uh, this month on the Agro Innovations podcast, we're focusing on agricultural biodiversity and its importance in healthy ecosystems. How does this dynamic play out in relation to beneficial and harmful insects? Well, do you want to focus just on beneficial and harmful insects? Because it really goes much beyond uh, just insects. Well, you know, you can you can maybe start with insects, and then you could move on along to uh, the broader agroecosystem, if you'd like. Well, you know, what I'd really like to do is maybe, can I start with an example? Sure. A story I heard from a researcher up in Michigan. Sure. Um, a Dr. David Orr, actually, he's a researcher at North Carolina State University now. Years ago, he was researching onion maggot in Michigan. And onion maggot is a, it's a fly larvae that attacks onions. Uh, the adult looks somewhat like a house fly. And in order to research the onion maggot, they had to keep onion maggot cultures in their lab. These cultures kept on dying out, and it turns out they were dying out due to pesticide residues um, in the onions. One of their graduate students suggested that they buy organic onions for their culture because they wouldn't have any pesticide residues. They did that. Uh, their culture successfully lived. But then that brought the question to uh, David Orr's mind that they had been advising all the growers in Michigan that they had to use pesticides in order to successfully raise onions 
And here was a grower that was not using pesticides. So they took a visit to the farm where this grower was to look at what the system looked like. Uh-huh. And what they found was uh, a series of raised beds on part of the farm where they were growing onions. Um, there were some weedy areas around the raised beds, mostly like onion, 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 then maybe a radish bed and some more onions. And uh, these beds were adjacent to a cow pasture. And they started looking around for the onion maggot adults and larvae uh, to see what they could find. The first One of the first things they found was that the larvae were parasitized by a wasp, but that this wasp also parasitized the silkfly larvae that were living in the cow patties. This wasp had an alternate host pretty close by, and that was one what you might call little hammer that reduced the population of that pest on onions. They also found in the weedy areas some adult flies, onion maggot flies, that were infected by a fungus. And uh, there's another little hammer that was reducing the population now and on into the future of that onion maggot. They also found a very high population family of flies that are predators and they catch their prey on the fly. The interesting thing about this, uh, this, robber, this species of robber fly was that its larvae were parasites of earthworms. And in order to have a really good population of robber flies, you have to have a very healthy population of earthworms, which means you have to have very healthy soils. And so my point here is there's two points I want to make with this story. One is that good pest management really begins with the soil. If you have healthy soils, you're going to have a very healthy plant and a healthy root system. The plants will be more resistant they will be less attractive to pests, and they'll be better able to recover from pest attack. The second point is that biocontrols, whether they're insects or other arthropods or even bats or things like that, uh, biocontrols come from very unexpected places. And maybe one particular biocontrol, for example, that wasp parasite that was attacking the onion maggot larvae, that may not and probably it is not enough to provide adequate control of that pest, but if you have several of these interactions going on, all hitting different points of the life cycle of that pest, then you have a lot of checks and balances in that system that provide a stability uh, in that system with respect to pest management. So the idea of a biodiverse system, we, we will never know all the interactions that are going on in an agricultural system because there just there are too many of them. But if, you, if we can provide a healthy biodiversity that is not increasing the pest complex, then we're better off because there's a lot more checks and balances. And the problem with our systems as they exist today is that we've intentionally designed out the biodiversity because the simpler systems are, are more easily managed. There are fewer variables to manage, or manage there. So this, in some ways, is the dumbing down of agriculture. Yes, exactly. And, and there's a danger, and there's a cost to that. I mean, uh, I think it was Carl Huffaker, 
was a researcher and a biocontrol specialist at, at the UC system years ago, but uh, he said something, and I'm paraphrasing, but um, when you remove a natural enemy, you assume its work. And here we are, we're removing whole complexes of interactions, and in different forms and fashions, we're assuming their work, and that work translates into more inputs, and that translates into higher energy costs. So let me ask you, uh, as you talk about these complex natural interactions, and as you, as you note that it's very difficult, if not impossible, to understand all of these interactions, how does a farmer or a consultant or an extension agent actually go about designing a system that's going to maximize these kinds of interactions and, you know, re-delegate the work to the natural enemies that uh, we've so brazenly assumed? Very good question, and, and there's not really a simple answer. One of the things I'm doing now is um, I'm when whenever I get an opportunity like this, I talk about how this can actually be done. Um, but the there's kind of several different approaches that I think you'd want to take in parallel. One is starting with the soil, and uh, first good crop rotations. I mean, these are basic kind of ag 101 kinds of things that um, a lot of folks ignore but good crop rotations break up a lot of different pest cycles not only insects but also diseases why do people uh, ignore them because <laughs> that's a very good question too because um say if you're growing cotton you may think that well cotton you may want to grow cotton on cotton on cotton on cotton because that's a profitable crop for you. And unfortunately, in some ways, our government subsidizes these unsustainable systems by providing uh, commodity support payments. Uh, if those payments did not exist, and you know, there'd be a lot of farmers hurting from losing those payments, but a lot of the more unsustainable practices that we do probably would not be able to be done because we as taxpayers are supporting a lot of these unsustainable systems. So um, part of it, it, you know, it seems more profitable in the short run to not do the crop rotations or the cover crops or the green manures. Uh, and then we substitute you know, fertilizer inputs and chemical pesticide inputs to make up for uh, the lack of biodiversity there. But then there are some other approaches uh, one might be able to take as far as, you know, going back to your original question about, well, how is a consultant or a farmer to go about doing this? I'd say look for the low-hanging fruit. And one of the things I recommend wherever I go is... Uh, even though they're not um, beneficial insects, uh, bats exist in every state. If you look at the pest complex that exists uh, as, as far as moths that fly at night, so there's the whole cutworm complex, which is several species. There's the whole armyworm complex, several species. Um, loopers, coddling moths, a lot of uh, fruit leaf rollers, uh, not to mention cucumber beetles and stink bugs and things like that. A lot of these critters, particularly the moths, but a lot of the other beetles fly at night. And here you have an insectivorous predator 
in several dozen species of bats around the country that fly at night as well. And if you, you can invite them onto your farm by providing them some habitat. And a lot of the habitat involves some relatively simple modifications uh, that can be added onto an existing barn structure, for example. Either a piece of plywood with a spacer on it, mm-hmm. providing maybe a three a three quarter inch gap for um, some bats to crawl up into, um, or you can just buy commercial bat boxes or make your own. Get buy, uh, download some designs for bat boxes and make your own. Right. You know that that's a pretty simple approach, right there. What about attracting beneficial insects, predators of other insects? Beneficial insects, as I said earlier, they're, they're like mini livestock, so they need sources of food, and they need places to stay, just like livestock, just like you and I. A lot of the beneficial insects are uh, parasites, you know, wasp parasites, but one of the kind of universal foods in the insect world is either pollen or nectar. And one of the approaches we've taken out here in California is uh, to add, for example, hedgerows, hedgerows using native perennials. So there's a couple aspects to that. Uh, The native perennials are adapted to this ecosystem, and uh, the selection of native perennials is geared towards sequential flowering or sequential sources of pollen and nectar Mm -hmm. so that... Uh, if you you can select maybe half a dozen or a dozen species that will uh, there are kind of tables that have been published showing when these species flower and you can kind of design your hedgerow to show to have nectar and pollen sources year-round you know depending on where you live if you live in the north central part of the US you wouldn't certainly have year-round if you could have pollen and nectar sources from early spring to late fall and uh, design your hedgerows around that kind of system. And plus, a lot of these uh, hedgerows provide overwintering habitat for, for example, ladybugs. If you can have some of these beneficial insects overwinter on your farm instead of seeking shelter in the woods or up in the mountains someplace, when they come out in the spring, they're going to be looking for some host or prey on your farm first, and that puts you one leg up on the on the pest uh, populations. Um, Those are kind of general approaches. Yeah, and and it also comes to my mind as you talk about all these things. You know, by planting uh, these hedgerows, you can get a number of other benefits besides creating habitat for beneficial insects. Uh, fodder for animals, nitrogen fixation, um, also uh, habitat for bees. If you're a beekeeper or if you have some beehives on your farm, you know, possibly woody biomass for chipping it and making mulch or, you know, the, the possibilities are, are fairly unlimited. Right. I would add to that list, and that was a very good list you mentioned, Frank, bird habitat on farms uh, that have them. The, there's a whole variety of birds that follow these hedgerows out. Uh, It gives them perching platforms. Uh, It also provides maybe a windbreak 
or it can provide windbreak, and uh, that allows the uh, beneficial insects to operate more efficiently if they're not being blown all over the place. Uh, it can be planted to medicinal, medicinal herbs. Right, so clearly there's a myriad of uses for these hedgerows, um, and this is all fantastic information. I did. I did want to take the chance to ask you about uh, integrated pest management, and if everything you're talking about kind of falls into the rubric of of integrated pest management. Right. Well, you know, yes, it is. And the integrated. The difference. You know, my bias is is towards organic pest management systems, or what I call biointensive pest management, as opposed to traditional IPM. Uh, some folks consider that uh, integrated pesticide management or uh, or other <laughs> less complementary uh, monikers. But uh, my bias towards organic stems from the fact that um, if you are organic, then you don't have really the option of using the synthetic chemicals for the most part. There are pesticides used in organics, but uh, generally they're not the synthetic chemical pesticides that um, are often pretty hard on, on beneficial populations. So uh, by not allowing that, organics is forced to use preventative measures of IPM. Uh, back in the uh, late 50s, it was an ecological approach to pest management, knowing the life cycle of your pest and understanding better it, how it fit into the ecosystem. And that has been kind of hijacked, I think, in a lot of ways, to think that, you know, you have to use chemicals as a last resort. Um, hopefully we can get you back on again sometime in the future and talk about uh, some of these practices in more detail. Um, we'd appreciate that. And, and thanks a whole bunch for being with us today, Rex. Um, it's been a pleasure. Um, Frank, it's been a, a great pleasure for me. And, and thanks for contacting me about this. And uh, I'm happy to talk with you anytime at all. Well, that does it for today's show. I'd like to thank everyone out there for listening. I'd also like to thank Rex Dufour once again for his participation and for sharing his knowledge. If you'd like to continue the dialogue, please go to agroinnovations.com, click on podcast, share with us your thoughts, ideas, and opinions about the theme of agricultural biodiversity. Next week, we'll be continuing with this theme. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Saludos.